many of you have ever inherited something? Okay. Sometimes it's just clothes from your older siblings, but <laughs> uh, I think we're going to see from this passage that we're looking at this morning that this idea of inheritance is an important one. At first, it just seems to be kind of a random collection of here's a few things that happened at the end of Abraham's life, and then here's some stuff that happened with Ishmael, and then here's some things that happened with Isaac and his sons. But I think the theme that unifies this chapter is this idea of inheritance. And specifically, what is our attitude toward it? Is it the same attitude that God has toward the inheritance, both with who should receive it and what it is? Or is it the attitude that we'll see at the end of the chapter with regard to Esau, that he despised his birthright, that he did not value his inheritance? And I think that there are uh, points of application for us as well, even as believers. And so we start out, and we have this somewhat puzzling circumstance in the beginning of the chapter, which uh, I didn't have Evan read for you, but I'll read for you briefly now. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran, Jokshan, Maiden, Midian, Ishbak, Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dadan. And the sons of Dadan were Ashram, Latushim, Laumim. The sons of Midian were Ephan, Ephor, and Hanak, and Abedah, and Elda. All these were the sons of Keturah. whole bunch of names in this first section. And the only ones that we really become well acquainted with later on are the family of Midian. Moses is going to get his wife from among the Midianites. The Midianites are going to plague the people of Israel at certain points in their later history. One of the puzzling questions that we encounter in these first few verses is, who is this person, Keturah? Why did Abraham take her as a wife? Was that right or wrong for him to do? And did her children pose any threat to the inheritance of Isaac. With regard to all of those questions, the short answer is there's much dispute about who Keturah is. One common view among the Jewish rabbis was that this was a name or a, a further name that was given to Hagar, that she came back to Abraham after Sarah died. The problem with that is that the tension of, or the, the, the tone of the story in earlier chapters seemed to be very much a sending away, not a bringing back. So she was sent away the first time temporarily, then she came back, and then it seems she was sent away pretty much permanently. Abraham's like, here's some stuff, I wanna, God's going to look after you, and he sends her away. It would seem then potentially to be a rejection of God's purpose for Abraham to then take her as his wife. Another point of question is, assuming that the events of this chapter are happening in chronological order, he takes a wife and then she bears children. It is possible, but unlikely, that Hagar is now bearing children 50 years later. And so, uh, which raises another interesting point. Was Abraham bearing children at 135, 140? Uh, one possible response to that is that... Um, Sarah was the reason for them being unable to conceive. God did this semi-miraculous work to bring about Isaac. And so Abraham was still able to bear children, not himself, but still able to have children uh, well into his later years. The bottom line is that the story does not give us the details to answer all of those questions. What is the emphasis here? The emphasis here is at whatever point in Abraham's life 
he took this woman Keturah as, according to 1 Chronicles, his concubine, or according to verse 1, as his wife. At whatever point in his life he took her and had children by her, the point that I think the narrator is focusing on here is this question of, are these children going to be a threat to Isaac, to Isaac's inheritance, even as Ishmael was, or is Abraham going to uphold God's purpose and re in recognizing that Isaac is the promised fulfillment of the, the beginning of the promises that God has made to Abraham and the one that God's going to bless, the one that God's going to work through. What's the answer to that? Well, we saw it in verse 5. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. To the sons of the concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So basically, like with Ishmael and Hagar, Abraham did provide for them, but he sent them away so that they would not be a threat to what God was doing through his son Isaac. Because Isaac was the one that God had promised to bless. Isaac was the one that was the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. I think this is emphasized as kind of one of the, the, the final things in Abraham's life. And again, we're not sure the exact chronology on this, but the, the main point is, before he died, Abraham took care of these things such that Isaac was clearly the recognized heir. He comes to the end of his life, 175 years, according to verse 7, breathed his last, died a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael return and bury him in the cave that he had purchased for his wife Sarah's grave, and Abraham is buried along with his wife. How do we know that God approved of Abraham's actions with regard to designating Isaac as the heir? Verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed his son Isaac. Isaac lived by the well of the God who sees. We saw this uh, as well in chapter 24 and verse 62. That's where he encountered Rebekah, and now this is where he is dwelling. And so, uh, there are subtle hints in the story that Isaac is someone who is committed to God, connected with God, in the place where God wants him to be, and certainly it's very clearly stated in it that this is the one whom God has designated to bless as the continuation of the promises that have been made to Abraham. Then we have this account of the descendants of Ishmael. Why does the narrator give us an account of the descendants of Ishmael right after he gives an account of the descendants of Keturah, but then he doesn't give an account of the descendants of, of Abraham with regard to Isaac. And the answer is, well, he kind of does, right? So he goes, he says, here's the sons of Keturah, the beginning of the chapter. Then he says the descendants of Ishmael in verses 12 through 18. And then he moves on, and the story becomes about Isaac for the next two chapters. Let me just read for you this section with regard to Ishmael. These are the record of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. There's a lot of subtle details in the text emphasizing the fact that he was Abraham's son, but he wasn't the son that came according to the, the way that God had designated for the fulfillment of the promise. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, his firstborn, Kedar, Adbil, Mibsa, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jitter, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, their names, by their villages, by their camps, twelve princes, 
according to their tribes. It is significant that there were 12 princes, 12 tribes of the descendants of Ishmael, just as there would later be 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. But they're mentioned here, and then they basically pass off the scene. There's an acknowledgement that, yes, God blessed them because he was Abraham's offspring, but he was not the one that was the fulfillment of God's promise. So then we come now to Isaac. These are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And that calls us back to the events of chapter 24, and it sets the stage for what we're going to see in this brief account here at the end of the chapter. What's Rebekah's condition in comparison with Sarah? She likewise is unable to have children. And at first glance, it seems like she couldn't have kids. They'd been trying for a little bit. Isaac prayed. Everything was all better, right? Look at verse 26. Look at the end of it, the last phrase. Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. What does that tell us about how long this was going on? Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years. Isaac and Rebekah had to wait 20 years. So there's interesting parallels between the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac. Notice what is different between Abraham and Isaac, in which Isaac has learned from Abraham, and I think we can say that Isaac was in some measure showing more faith than Abraham. What is his response to Rebekah's inability to bear children? He turns to God in prayer, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. The Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, what that verse doesn't show us that we don't see until verse 26 is how long was Isaac doing this prayer? Probably the better part of 20 years. But God heard his prayer, and God answered, and God is still keeping the promises that he made to Abraham. There's not a specific statement, Isaac, you're going to have sons, you're going to have children, but if Isaac is the recipient of God's blessing through Abraham, he's got to have kids for that promise to keep being passed down through the generations, right? And so God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham in his son Isaac with regard to him having children. But then there's this, there's this tension. The children struggled together within her. And uh, it's almost this picture of like there's this wrestling match going on inside her. The babies are fighting in her womb. And she says, this isn't normal. You know, babies kick. That's a normal thing. Um, but for them to like feel like they're fighting together, she was puzzled. She didn't understand. She went to inquire of the Lord. It doesn't say where she went to inquire of the Lord, right? Did she go to inquire of the Lord from Abraham? Did she go to someone like Melchizedek that we met uh, way back in chapter 14? The text doesn't say. But she goes to inquire of the Lord, and God hears her. Isaac is praying to God, and God answers. Rebekah is praying to God, and God answers. What does this say about their relationship to God? They have one, for starters, and second of all, it is one in which God hears and responds to them. What does God say to them? In the form of, uh, basically, a prophecy, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be separated from your body, one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This has something of the form of 
some of the things that we see earlier in Genesis, like God's statement to Adam and Eve and the serpent in chapter 3, and, and some of the other statements that God has made to Abraham along the way, just statements, here's what's going to happen, here's what's going on. It is surprising that God says the older would serve the younger. Why is that surprising? Because the one who should inherit should be the older one. But that shouldn't have been too surprising in Isaac's own case because he was not the oldest offspring of Abraham, was he? There was not a real sense of Ishmael serving Isaac, but it wouldn't necessarily have been surprising for God to say this because he had just done it in terms of who was the designated heir. But there's still an element of probably Isaac expecting that the oldest is going to be the heir. We'll get down to that in just a moment. What were they like when our days to be delivered were fulfilled? We're going to see that language again later in the New Testament, right? When the right time had come, when the time for the fulfillment of God's promise came about, she gave birth. There were twins. The first was red like a hairy garment. They named him Esau. His brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob the one who takes by the heel the supplanter. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Uh, their names are somewhat prophetic, both because of the incident later in this chapter and because of Jacob's character that God roots out of him over the next however many chapters in the book of Genesis. The boys grow up. Esau becomes a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Which one is more like Ishmael? Esau. Which one is potentially more like Cain? Esau. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. It's interesting that Isaac's love for Esau was basically came down to a selfish thing. He brings me venison. He brings me good food. That's, that, that's kind of a shallow reason to love one of your children, right? This theme of favoritism is going to come up again later in the book of Genesis, as you're well aware. Rebecca loves Jacob. And this is going to create conflict, as we'll see in chapter 26 and 27. Jacob cooks stew. Esau comes in from the field and is famished. Verse 30 Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom, or red. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Swear to me. So he swore to him. He sold his birthright. Jacob gave him the bread and the lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Pretty straightforward thing. One brother's hungry, the other brother says, I want something for my hard work. The other brother's like, sure. Eats and drinks, goes on his way. But what was it that Jacob was asking for? The birthright. The right to inherit. It wasn't just like, hey, give me five bucks. It was, you are giving up the spiritual and the, um, in terms of possessions, responsibility and benefits of being the firstborn son of our father. The fact that Jacob would ask that reveals something about his character. 
he wasn't willing for God to give it to him. He was scheming to get it on his own. It also reveals something about Esau's character and his response. Well, if I die, it doesn't matter if I'm going to get all this stuff 20 years from now because I'll be dead and I won't get to enjoy it. There's a little bit more going on with the value and the benefit of the birthright than just, I'll get stuff from Isaac who's rich later on down the road, right? Esau is essentially saying, I don't value having a relationship with God. And this is where, you know, I think the Sunday school stories get it right, you know? Basic, simple, but Esau should not have sold his birthright. How do we know that? Because verse 34 said he despised it. And the narrator, I think, has given us the sense, Isaac received it, Abraham gave it to Isaac, Isaac possesses it, Esau, by rights, should receive it, Esau's like, forget it, I don't care. That's a problem. What's the significance then? God was going to keep his promises to Jacob on his time. How long does Jacob spend with Laban? 21 plus years. Jacob had this idea from the beginning of his life that maybe he's owed things and then if he schemes enough, he'll get things. God's going to break Jacob of that expectation by the end of his life and recognize that God is the one who grants or withholds blessings. But God is still going to work through Jacob. Romans 9 says this, God said with regard to Jacob, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Or we could put it another way, I've chosen Jacob, I have rejected Esau. Why? Some people would be like, well, it's because Esau sold his birthright. Except Romans 9 doesn't give us that wiggle room. It says, before they were born, not having yet done good or evil, God said this, I'm going to bless this one, I'm not going to bless this one. So then Esau had an excuse to do what he did because he was just living out the plan that God had for him, right? No. We are still responsible for our decisions before God, even knowing full well what God's sovereignty has decreed to happen in the cases where he's revealed it or even the cases where he has not revealed it. And the thing that we must not do is to live like Esau and despise the inheritance that we possess before God. There were two obstacles to receiving the inheritance in this chapter. And I think there are likewise two obstacles to us today possessing an inheritance. The first obstacle was being the wrong person. If you were Ishmael or if you were Esau, you weren't going to be the one that was getting the blessing. Was that something that they could change? No. What was the second obstacle, though? The second obstacle was one's attitude toward the potential inheritance that they would receive. And that's, I think, the point of application for us today. If we have the attitude that Esau did toward the inheritance, the blessings that we possess in Christ, we are not going to value them. We are potentially going to cast them aside. And in so doing, we will reveal the truth of our heart, which is that we don't love God, that we may not even know God, which was, I think, true for Esau. What inheritance am I talking about? Well, turn over to Ephesians for a moment. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, God the Father purposed in God the Son, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him, in Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. God promised an inheritance to his chosen people in the persons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has promised an inheritance to his people today through Christ. Interestingly, by having the same kind of faith that Abraham had, that's how we receive the inheritance. We have the right to share in that inheritance. What is it possible then for us to have uh, thoughts with regard to that inheritance? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now the larger context of this is Paul is saying to the Ephesians, don't live according to the old way of life because if you do, you have no inheritance. I've said at the beginning you do have an inheritance, so why would he say now in chapter 5 you don't have an inheritance? It is, there are several possibilities. One is... You profess to know God, but you don't really, so you live this way. The other is that you're a Christian who's living this way and ought not to live this way, and at least in some measure you are despising the inheritance that God has promised to you. I'm not saying that Christians can lose their salvation. I am saying we ought not take lightly the blessings that we have in Christ. Because if we do, we are at least to some measure expressing the same sort of attitude that Esau did. Esau, because he was an unbeliever, us potentially because we don't realize the significance of what it is that we're doing. And so just like we were talking about in the Sunday school hour with regard to some of the warning passages in Hebrews, these sober admonitions that we find in Scripture are designed so that God's people would A, recognize that they are God's people, and B, not act like they're not God's people, not undervalue the blessings and the privileges that they have in Christ. There's many other passages that we could turn to, but I think this one serves to illustrate this point. God had promised to bless Abraham. God gave an inheritance to Abraham and to his descendants, and that was passed down through bloodlines, through the person that God had chosen. God has given us an inheritance in Christ, an inheritance that is received not because of the family that we're born into, but because of faith in Christ like Abraham had the faith in God. 
But the same dangers exist that we miss the inheritance because like Ishmael or like Esau, we do not belong to God's people. If we reject the gospel, we will not receive the inheritance. And then the second, if we seemingly have the opportunity to receive the inheritance, but we don't persevere in the faith that we profess, you will not get it. Don't be like Esau. Value the inheritance, the blessing that you have in Christ. God has blessed us greatly in Christ. We ought to see the importance of that, and we ought not to trade it for worthless things. What did Esau do? Spiritual blessing, participating in the covenant that God has made with Abraham, feeding my belly. Christians don't make those kind of foolish trades. Or do we? What things are there in this world that we can love that loving them threatens our inheritance in Christ and at the very least means that other people want no part of it? What things are there that we can love in this world? The things that Paul talked about, right, in Ephesians 5. Greed, lust, idolatry, covetousness. When we love the things of this world, instead of loving God, we are acting just like Esau. And the outcome, if we genuinely belong to God, is not going to be the same as it was for Esau because God has promised that he's going to continue to work in his people and he will bring us to a place of repentance. But in that moment, we ought not have confidence that we are honoring God. We ought not have confidence that God is pleased with us. We ought not have confidence in the blessing of the inheritance. And that's where sometimes our presentation of the gospel gets it backward because we're like, check the box, and you've got the ticket, you've gotten, you're going to get the thing when the will is read out, right? You're going to get to go to heaven. As long as you've prayed the prayer. But if our lives are not ongoing expressions of belief in God and living out that faith before God and putting off sin and putting on righteousness and all of those sorts of things, we ought not have confidence that we are in the will. We have to ask ourselves, are we being like Esau? And like we talked about in Sunday school, we want to rest on the promises that you can't lose your salvation and that God will work in you. And those are true. But I think a passage like this puts the weight on our hearts and minds of saying, am I being someone who values what God has given to me, or am I being someone who is willing to throw it away for something that brings temporary satisfaction and fleeting happiness 
do we see the importance of what we have in Christ? Or do things that are around us in this world start to get way more important than they ought to be, start to seem way more attractive than they ought to be? We need to examine our hearts and our lives. Am I behaving in this world like Esau with regard to the sin that Jesus died so I wouldn't live in, with regard to the pleasures of this world which are empty and fleeting, or am I valuing the inheritance that God has provided for me in Christ, not because I deserve it, because like Jacob, none of us do, but because God is at work in us, we're following him, we're growing in faith, we want to please God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Pray that they would challenge our hearts. Lord, help us to feel the weight of Scripture, not to immediately go to the relief of saying, but you're at work in your people, but, but you're going to bring us to repentance, but to feel the tension of, if I cast off this inheritance, I am lost. If I don't value this inheritance, I am insulting the God who has promised it to me. Help us to feel the weight of those truths so that we would live in a way that honors you. Yes, by your grace. Yes, for your glory. But help us to be motivated by the testimony of Scripture, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.